Welcome to Bridging the Cyber Divide, Casting the Cyber Net, a special InnovationOz.com podcast series brought to you by CyberArk. The security legislation amendment, Critical Infrastructure Bill, marks a step change in the way the Australian government defines critical infrastructure and has put significant requirements on a range of new industries to ensure they're compliant. In this podcast series, we speak to independent experts who will help pull apart the nuances of the legislation, particularly in respect to new industries. Hello and welcome. I'm James Riley from InnovationOz.com. Welcome to the Bridging the Cyber Divide, Casting the CyberNet Wider podcast series. Today, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, and specifically, some of the impact of the critical infrastructure legislation that's before Parliament, the changes that are on the way. I have with me Sam Grunhard, an Assistant Secretary at the Department of Home Affairs, and Deputy Group Manager of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre. And I have Thomas Fickenshire, Regional Director, Australia New Zealand, for the privileged access management organisation, CyberArk. The Critical Infrastructure Bill is a step change in the way the Australian Government defines critical infrastructure, and it's put significant new obligations on a range of new industries and new players to ensure they're cyber compliant. Critical infrastructure and cybersecurity in relation to each other, obviously not a new thing, but the requirements of the legislation are much broader and the very detailed draft legislation requires a solid understanding of what that impact will mean for various companies and various industries. This episode will explore some of those key changes. So welcome, Sam, and welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much. Sam, I'm going to start with you. I would like you just to give us a, a kind of a nuts and bolts description of this wider cyber net that's been cast, what are some of the implications for companies that might not previously consider themselves to be critical infrastructure? And how do they go about you know, ensuring that they meet their obligations? Some might not even know that they have new obligations on the way. Thanks very much, James. So the legislation, as you know, is a really significant step change in the way Australia governs risk within our critical infrastructure. It's not just directed towards the cyber risk, it is directed towards a range of hazards that can interrupt those essential services that we rely on every day, our banking system, our telecommunications, our electricity, and so on. But it's certainly fair to say that the cyber risk was front of mind in the government and parliament's mind, and there's particular measures in the legislation about the cyber risk, very specific measures. You're right that it is a significant step change. You make the point that not everyone may know they're covered or may not know what they need to do. There's a range of information we've published on our website, which I recommend people have a look at. One of the real confusions, I think, is that the legislation, for the first time, defines right across a range of 11 sectors of the economy what government considers to be critical infrastructure. There have been policies in place before, there have been statements in place before, but this is the first time we've had a comprehensive piece of legislation that defines what is critical infrastructure and within the critical sectors, what particular assets government thinks are particularly critical. But it's not the case that all the obligations in the legislation will apply to all of those assets equally. Governments try to be very measured and very tiered in the approach. That means it's a complicated story to tell. 
And so some businesses that are covered by one aspect of the legislation won't be covered by another. It's really worth having a careful look at the guidance material we're putting out. In the broad, what it means is those entities that will be covered particularly by the risk management program obligation, which we can talk more about a little later, will have to pay much closer attention, I think, all the way to the board level to how they're managing risk, not just cyber risk, but very particularly cyber risk. And you know, perhaps we can delve into that a little more as we go along. The other really significant change that legislation puts in place is not only the ability for government to act in the case of a cyber crisis, but establish the framework and the protections that need to be in place for government to act. What it does is establish for the first time if the Australian Signals Directorate and the ACSC are going to help a business, what are the controls, what are the liability frameworks, what are the appeal rights, who is oversighting it, all of that is set down in the legislation. And that making clear what is the legal framework in those circumstances is a really significant change so that we're prepared in case of a cyber crisis. You can hear I could talk about this for a very long time, but I'm, I'm going to stop there. Yeah, look, I've got a ton of questions, actually. But just before I go to Thomas, can I run this past you? We've obviously had the Optus breach, but we also, we've also we also had cyber warfare. There's no other word for it in terms of the demonstrated issues in the Ukraine when they're literally getting bombarded with state-sponsored actions. So things have got very serious very quickly. And those two things have obviously occurred outside of when that legislation was drafted. What's the mood inside government? Are you expecting to see changes? There's a lot of talk now about various changes to privacy legislation, these kinds of things. What's happened inside government? I imagine you personally have been extremely busy. Me and an awful lot of other people uh, around both of those issues you just raised. So certainly the Ukraine crisis was a very early test of our ability to understand what legislative tools are now available. And you will have seen from statements from governments around the world, not just in Australia, how very concerned we were about the threat environment prior to, but also, you know, at the commencement of that conflict. So that's exactly the sort of crisis that was on government's mind when it asked Parliament and on Parliament's mind when Parliament passed the crisis step-in measures that I was referring to earlier. We need to be better prepared. We are regrettably in an increasingly unstable world. You will have seen some of the statements, particularly from the CISA in the US and from the Office of the President about targeting of critical infrastructure in cyberspace, targeting energy, targeting land transport, targeting the fuel infrastructure in the lead up and during the commencement of that conflict. So we are very concerned and that is why the legislation was brought on to deal with the threat environment. To answer your question about Optus, yes, it has generated an awful lot of activity in Canberra and you'll see lots of ministers have been commenting. It's another example where a crisis tests our existing frameworks. I think largely they've stood up well, but it has absolutely exposed some gaps and some mechanisms that aren't quite stitched up correctly and the government's taking a very serious look at that now. Again, I could say more about that, but I'll pause. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go to, to Thomas now. Certainly in relation to Optus, it has exposed all sorts of gaps. I wonder if you can comment from the commercial side of your customers or the businesses that you talk to. Firstly, what's the mood out there like on the back of Optus? But then on the critical infrastructure legislation, are companies prepared? What are they telling you in relation to what they need to do to get things right? I think I start with the first part of the question related to Optus. 
Every time a major breach happens, and uh, this time it's in Australia, but it was before when we had breaches in the healthcare sector overseas in the UK, or breaches like Colonial Pipeline was a very high profile one. I think it always focuses the mind and uses the term wake up call. And then you get calls, you get obviously a lot more dialogue going. Unfortunately, it's a reactive way of acting rather than proactively being focused on that particular topic and doing that day in, day out and week in, week out. We tend to shy away from sort of using these opportunities to basically go in and go to all companies and create this boom and gloom kind of scenario. I don't think that's a good thing to do, but it's a good example of what can happen in any organization that has experienced a breach like that knows that it's an absolute nightmare. Because your normal operations are completely sidelined and you have to stay in there. You have to work on the legislative side, the consequences, the post-incident reporting. There's so many things to go through. So it's it's a wake-up call and we get that feedback from customers. So for us, it's an opportunity to obviously bring that to the forefront again, to the front of mind. And that's been happening in the last couple of weeks a lot in our conversations. If you talk about the wider sort of critical infrastructure framework, um, it always depends who you talk to. And some organizations, particular and specific sectors like energy sectors, they have certainly taken that very seriously. And I have received calls myself from some CISOs, from energy companies who actually want to have these conversations now more proactively. And that's a good thing. I think other sectors who are part of that 11, you know, list of 11 sectors, they are probably a little bit more hesitant. And Sam mentioned the word, there's a level of confusion. There's more about a question of what does it actually mean for me? What is the positive security obligation mean? When do I have to act and how do I have to act? I think there's an education and advisory work to be done in that particular space. So yeah, it depends. It depends who you talk to. I don't think it's a very, very clear picture as yet. I think, uh, Thomas, we'll just stay with you for a moment. But cybersecurity is obviously a team game. Government is a key player. I don't know that it's always been viewed that way. I think perhaps for the largest of our companies, there is that kind of very cooperative relationship with government and their security professionals. As we move into a broader subset, how are companies feeling about how they work with government? Is that something that people even talk about now? The notion of a team game, I mean, I, I'm a sports person and I've been in teams. So when you actually think about a team, then you actually have frequent dialogue, you train together, you back each other up, right? There are some of those principles in team games. And sometimes I get frustrated when I hear these kind of terms because, A, open dialogue. I mean, a lot of things that are still happening are sort of embedded in formality. They're embedded in red tape. So that tempers an open dialogue. And I think that's one of the difficulties between government agencies and the private sector. There are still a lot of these probity measures around that. It's very hard to actually have an open dialogue even before tenders come to market and certain technology projects need to be initiated. I don't think that's really helpful when it comes to a team game, to be honest. And again, you know, it shouldn't be a blame game. You shouldn't actually say that person is responsible, that person is responsible. I mean, we're all in this together because there is a good infrastructure set of environment in Australia to be protected. And I think that needs to be broken down further. The willingness to do that, to operate and have a dialogue is there. I mean, I can only talk for my own company. I would love to have more of a conversation proactively with government entities and government agencies about what needs to be done and how we can help from a technology perspective to invest proactively and find the right people in the market for that. But I think we have a way to go. So the idea of cybersecurity team game, yes, in practice, bumpy. <laughs> so Sam, I'm sure you'd have to uh, jump in there. 
The view from your side of the fence on this notion of team game, open dialogue and all those sorts of things. Thank you. And look, uh, Thomas, you're right. Team games require things like training together. That is, in fact, the reasoning behind some of the measures in the Act, such as the measures for systems of national significance, which is the very most critical of the critical infrastructure assets to directly partner with our friends in the ACSC on things like vulnerability assessments, on incident response planning, to make sure that we're training together, as you say, and that we're pre-positioned for the most significant assets before an incident occurs so that they're not calling the ACSC cold and saying we need to talk about a problem in our systems and they have to start from scratch, that they are in fact training together. Your comment about red tape is right. You know, there's plenty of red tape in government. I'd also note that, you know, it's not unusual for our approaches to companies be met with the corporate lawyers rather than the security people because, you know, industry worries about this stuff too. So there can be red tape on both sides. And look, that's why we really need to build those partnerships. I have to say my friends in the ACSC, I think, are doing a fantastic job beginning to partner, partly under the funding they received under the Red Spice program, really directly partner with as much critical infrastructure as they can. We're working with them on that to identify within our expertise who are the most critical of critical infrastructure that they need to be partnering with. And then the legislation establishes a bit of legislative red tape, but also a framework by people can feel comfortable understanding who's responsible and what the liabilities are. One of the reasons those parts of the legislation were introduced is because there'd been experience over the past few years of companies, and particularly their lawyers, not being happy to partner with the ACSC or to partner with government because they've been unsure about the liabilities if something goes wrong. The legislation is designed to set the rules of the game for everybody so that everybody knows who's responsible for what, who's oversighting it, who you can appeal to, to actually make that engagement quicker and easier in the case of a crisis. So I'm not suggesting that the legislation suddenly solves everything and makes it incredibly straightforward, but I certainly echo Thomas's comments about that partnership approach, that the whole point of the legislation is to really underpin that partnership between industry and government. On that, can I just ask, we've sort of seen a live example of a a crisis with the Optus issue. If that legislation had been in place now, what difference would that have made in relation to information sharing in particular? Well, James, it is in place. The relevant measures are in place and are in force. We've certainly had conversations with Optus and, as I say, with every other agency in town about how to respond to the crisis. And that conversation has been informed by the measures that are there in the legislation. Now, in an ideal world, you've got such good partnership in place that you actually don't need to to use legislative measures, although the availability of them can can change that conversation. So, you know, we've had really good conversations across agencies and, and with Optus in response to the recent crisis. One thing our minister has said, Minister for Home Affairs has said publicly, is she's not certain that the consequence management framework that we need in the situation like this was available in the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act. And I think that's a good point. The Security of Critical Infrastructure Act is really designed to set in preventative measures via risk management programs and then deal with immediate cyber crisis response to resolve a cyber incident. It's not designed adequately to deal with the consequences. So in this case, for example, the misuse of the data that had been leaked, that had been exfiltrated, I'm sorry, to commit fraud. So that's something government's certainly looking at. Okay. I'm sort of interested to know when companies come to you, say, you know, larger, smaller, it could be telco, it could be energy from any sector, what's the most common kind of query 
that they have of you in terms of the obligations that they carry? In terms of the obligations under the Act, the most common query is, what do I need to do and when do I need to do it? And you noted before there's some confusion about this. That's partly because the passage of the measures through Parliament was complex. Things got split into two different bills. That means different provisions have commenced at different times. That's just the messy nature of democracy at work. And it does make for a complicated picture. So, you know, we have done a deal of work and we are still working on clarifying the picture for people to understand when the different obligations commence because they're sort of staggering in throughout this year and next year. And that's not an easy story to tell. So we're trying to make that clearer for people. Outside of the Act itself, the most common question is, you keep telling us about the various threats, but what do I need to do? What's the best thing I can do to quickly you know, deal with the threats that you're talking about? And how do I get a single view from government instead of having to go to all the different agencies? That's what we're working very closely with the ACTSC on and with our other security agencies to try to give a more streamlined picture. Thomas, I wonder if I could just ask you very simply, have you had a spike of inquiries since the Optus issue broke? Not in the sense that people immediately jump into opportunities and want to actually implement certain technology component, not in that sense, but, but I think we see it more in our partner landscape. So if you look at the big consultancies, the big advisory firms like the BWCs, Deloitte's and KPMG's of this world, they certainly see more inquiries to provide uh, guidance and advice how to deal with these kinds of scenarios. And I think that's not just being prepared for a breach and disaster recovery and incidents handling. I think that's one part of it. But also, if you look at board level, I mean, Sam talked about the implication to boards. I mean, you need to do things like board level attestation to the Department of Home Affairs. You need to align organization with regulatory compliance. You need to make sure we get that one right. And I think, again, you know, these kinds of incidents, they focus your mind. And, and I think there's opportunities for advisories and consultancies to do some work now. That's probably spiking quite quickly. If you look at the smaller end and the mid-market end of organizations who have less in-house knowledge and resources, there's this area of managed services. So you can actually say, hey, can I outsource this responsibility? Are there organizations who have a specific offering for me to deal with the critical infrastructure obligations? And you find big outsourcing companies like, you know, the Tata Consultings, the WePros, the Accentures of this world, thinking very carefully about that. And I think the other one is, and it's a big problem, and keen to get sense view on that as well, is the sheer availability of qualified people, people who actually know what a privacy act looks like, who understand the Commonwealth risk management program and the details around that. So you have maybe clearance in, to be able to work in government agencies. So I think that availability of knowledge is something that we see people asking, do you have people, do you have qualifications all the time? So that's probably how it sort of flows through at the moment. Sam, I saw you nodding your head vigorously. I guess insider skills is both a perennial and now severe issue. Look, it is. And I know you're right, Thomas, we hear this from a lot of companies we speak to. And frankly, we feel it within government as well. You know, when we're trying to pick up the skills that we need and competing in the marketplace for those, it's a very challenging labour market at the moment. You'll see the ministers made some statements about the cyber strategy that needs to be done and needs to really tackle this challenge of the cyber skills pipeline over the coming years. We are very short on what we need. And there's only so much we can pull from other countries, given the level of competition there is internationally for the cyber skills we need. So I feel it very acutely myself within government as well. You know, We need to hire people who have the right understanding 
and the right skills, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to find them. So this is a cross-portfolio issue. Of course, the you know, minister will need to work with other ministers and other portfolios on the education and the skills and the training pipelines that we need to start to bring on those skills over the next few years, absolutely. All right, Sam Grunhard and Thomas Fickenshire, I'm going to start winding up in just a moment. I did want to ask, so Sam, in that relationship between business and end-user cyber companies that have their cyber issues and your organisation, I mean, how do you dispense advice? You obviously can't be recommending particular vendors or even particular services, but when we talk about things like outsource services or managed services that can tighten up some cybersecurity issues, how do you manage that kind of advice? Thanks, James. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting area, the managed service area. I think you're right. We can't and won't recommend particular vendors or specific solutions. That's why even in the risk management program, which is out for consultation right now, if you haven't seen on our website, now that consultation is occurring. It's principles-based. We don't go to specifics of exactly what mechanisms people should follow. And that's very deliberate. You don't want government, I think, being that prescriptive for such the range of businesses we're talking about here. But we do need to give principles-based advice. The other thing we need to do is collaborate with industry and get industry collaborating with each other in a non-competitive way. That's why, for example, we've set up a new data and managed services sector group under the Trusted Information Sharing Network for industry to come together and share lessons about successes and perhaps more importantly about failures with each other and with government. That network has existed for many years in some of those other sectors, but we're increasingly realising the critical importance of data and of managed service providers. So we've established a new group to share that information with government and, as I say, critically with each other so that we can all learn from each other's successes and failures. And I think that's perhaps the most important value our government can give, that convening power to have a non-competitive discussion about the threats that we're all facing. Thomas, I'm going to leave the final word to you. Firstly, what's your view of the, the outlook from here? Also, what's your prescription for locking things down? So the outlook, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged that we see the Critical Infrastructure Act now flowing through. I, I like the fact that the government recently nominated 82 assets in Australia, very particular assets and calls them the ground jewels. And of course, for legal reasons, they can't be nominated. But I mean, there, there would be some, you know, utility companies and energy companies and healthcare companies as part of that. And I think that's absolutely overdue. So for me, that's all great and it will flow through. And, and I think we as a technology organization together with the consulting and managed service organizations will, will have, an, have a chance to provide value in this particular environment. So that for me is a good thing. I'm still concerned about enforcement, to be honest, when it comes to any form of regulation, how it flows through. You see the logical reason for boards to act, but then you see business people. Um, recently, David Gonski was on air and talked about we should have a safe harbor for board directors because otherwise this whole cyber topic is too difficult. So it's like almost like watering down responsibility at the board level when it comes to the whole cybersecurity topic. The Business Council of Australia wants everything to be voluntary. <laughs> so there are counter forces in the market. And I think we need to accept accountability for this because otherwise it's not going to work. So for me, that's a worry. For us as an organization, we follow risk-based approach. So we secure access, we secure identities as a business. And we look at, look at that risk curve. If you have... People who are just accessing normal business systems and the standard access, you're probably low on the risk curve 
But if you're accessing payment systems and transactions, you're going higher. If you're actually doing cloud administration, you're going higher. So we've got that risk curve and we're looking at people operating critical assets or critical infrastructure and they're very, very high up on that risk curve. So our job is to make sure we understand where the operators sit, where the users sit and collaborate with government agencies and our partners to make that better on a daily basis. So that's what we're here for. All right, I'm going to draw it to a close. Thank you very much, Sam Gunhard from the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre at the Department of Home Affairs and Thomas Finkenshire, Regional Director, ANZ for CyberArk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Bridging the Cyber Divide, Casting the Cybernet podcast, brought to you by CyberArk. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit cyberarc.com.